This week, we're going to begin the holiday of Hanukkah and just a brief history of, of what happened. And I want to also pull one question and give several answers to a question about Hanukkah. And hopefully that will enable us to glean some of the deeper insight on this wonderful holiday. So the story of Hanukkah begins with the Greeks. There's various Greeks. There's the Macedonians and Alexander, and you have the Ptolemians in Egypt. But the story really intensifies with the Assyrian or Seleucid Greeks of Asia Minor and Assyria. And they are led by someone by the name of Antiochus or Antiochus. There's Antiochus III, but really Antiochus IV. He's the one who really gets the ball rolling on the story of Hanukkah. So he begins an assault on Judaism. This is presented, certainly in Jewish sources, as a religious conflict as much as a territorial one, as much as a a war on sovereignty. And Antiochus, he has bans on Torah study, public Torah study certainly, on observance of Shabbos or Jewish holidays, on kosher, on circumcision, on the laws of Nida. And he's a very brutal dictator and he imposes very severe sanctions on Jewish life and Jewish practice. So essentially he starts corrupting the Jewish way of life. And this was a Greek ideal really, in all their conquest. It wasn't just about territorial conquest. It was also about uh, acculturation, about taking the Greek morals and the Greek ideologies and trying to infuse them into the conquered people. And that was called, of course, Hellenism. And the Jews eventually get fed up, and it begins in the city of Modin. And we know the story. There's Matasyahu, an old Kohen, and... They are the Greeks try to get someone to worship the idolatry and, and, and offer a sacrifice which of a pig. And Matasyao pulls a dagger and starts attacking all the people, and the revolt begins. And there's a protracted 25-year war. And the Hasmoneans, as they became known, or the Maccabees, the family of Hashmonai, Matasyao and his five sons, they lead a rebel guerrilla army against the mighty Greek empire. And eventually, after many, many years of war, they managed to evict the invading forces out of the land of Israel, out of the land of Judah. That's the quick uh, version of the story. Uh, And eventually, they get back to the temple. The temple was defiled and corrupted by the Greeks, and they restore it. And one of the temple sacrifices, of course, or or services, is the menorah. And they only find one jug of undefiled oil. And they put it in there. It's only supposed to last for one day. It lasts for eight. By the time it lasts for eight days, they're able to travel all the way to the northern of Israel to get more pure oil and to bring it back and to restore the ongoing lighting ceremony of the menorah every day. That's the story. Now, there's a prayer that we say during the during the week, during the eight days of Hanukkah, that describes the miracles of that we are commemorating. I want to read to you, because this really is the official version of what happened, in a, in a synopsized version. In the days of Matisyob and Yochanan the Kohen God, the high priest, Hashmonaya, the Hasmonean, 
him and his sons, when the evil, wicked, Greek empire stood up against your nation, Israel. This is a prayer. And they tried to make us forget Torah and to make us abandon the laws, the mitzvos, and you, you God, in your overwhelming mercy, you stood up and supported them in the time of their despair. You fought their wars. You judged their judgings. You avenged their vengeance. And you gave over the mighty in the hands of the weak, the many in the hands of the few, the impure in the hands of the pure, the wicked in the hands of the righteous, and the wanton sinners in the hands of those that observe your Torah. And for you, you made a great name and a holy name in your world, and for your Jewish nation, you did a great salvation as this very day. And afterwards, your sons came to your temple, and they cleared it out, and they purified it, and they light, they lit the candles in your in the courtyards of your holiness, and they established eight days of Hanukkah to thank you and to praise your holy name. That's the story. So if you actually break it down, you'll notice that there's really two parts of the miracle. There's the military aspect, the fact that a small rad-tag rebel guerrilla army was able to actually win, be, achieve victory on the field of battle with a great empire, with much more talented mercenaries and soldiers and battle tactics and generals, uh, one of the world's greatest empires. So that's one miracle, the military miracle. And then, of course, there's the spiritual miracle, the fact that they came to the temple and they restored the temple and they lit the oil. The oil lasted for eight days. By that time, they're able to travel and get more oil. And it's really interesting that, you know, if we were to assess which one of those miracles is more significant, a 25-year war against a very mighty enemy that, uh, against all odds, achieves success, that's a great miracle. Whereas the miracle of the oil, if you think about it, it wasn't that great of a miracle. It wasn't that necessary of a miracle, right? Because uh, you know, they went for years without lighting the menorah. So the fact that they were able to light the menorah and it lasted, the, the, the oil supposed to last for one day, lasted for eight. Okay, what would have happened if it only lasted for one? So they had seven days without pure oil. You know what? The halacha actually states that if there is no pure oil, you should use impure oil. So would it have been the end of the world? And then a week later, they were gone to, gone to the northern part of Israel and c- gathered the, the pure jugs of oil and brought it back and everything would have been hunky-dory. Imagine if the military miracle had not worked out. You would have had slaughter of men, women, and children, towns. The whole country would have gone up in flames. The whole nation would have been destroyed. Of course, I, I think to us, we could think, uh, we would surmise that the military miracle is not only more significant, but it's more important. Yet, if you look at what we celebrate, we eat the donuts and we eat the latkes and, and we light the menorah. It's all oil-oriented and this, the, the, the actual mitzvah of the holiday, of the festival, is all oriented around the menorah and that miracle. And we, don't even, we just make the passing mention in this prayer of the military victory, which was so much more significant, or at least that's what we would assume. So the question is, why are we celebrating? Why are we 
memorializing? Why are we highlighting the comparatively more minor miracle and not the more major miracle? It's a really interesting question to, I think it's a good angle to approach some of the themes of Hanukkah. So I want to give you three answers, and I think these answers can lay the groundwork for some of the themes that we're trying to hit, some of the notes we're trying to strike on this festival. So the first answer to this question is the question of the spiritual front versus the physical front. The Greeks were the first to launch a spiritual war. This whole war, it began not because of territorial disputes, not because of uh, aggression, physical aggression of any sort. It was a broadside attack on the spiritual infrastructure of our nation. The Greeks had their spiritual ideas. They did not allow their conquer people to have their own spiritual ideas. They didn't live and let live uh, like other dominant controlling nations like the Persians let us live and live and let live for the most part. The Romans for the most part let us live and live and let live. In America, we could practice religion freely. They didn't believe that. They were the first ones to say, not only are we going to subject you physically, we're going to force you to be a part of our empire and be under our dominion. We're going to be your overlords. We're also going to tell you how to think and how to behave and how to worship. And therefore, really, if we think about the war, it was – and today, like in this modern state of Israel, the Hasmoneans are put on a pedestal. And they were the ones who say, we're going to fight back. And there, it's interesting, the, the Olympics, the Israeli Olympic teams called the Maccabees or the Maccabee Games, which is so ironic because the Greeks were the ones who introduced the idea of Olympics – to the world, to focus on the beautiful human body. And the Maccabees were the ones who came to the world, who came in and said, no, we're talking about the Jewish ideal of looking at the soul and looking at the body, so to speak, as an impediment to the soul's ascension and the soul's greatness. And ironically, the Maccabee games are the ones where we have, like, we act as Greeks in in a certain sense, which is really ironic. But what were the Maccabees trying to do? They were trying to restore the spiritual stability and security of the nation. And therefore, we have to look at this war as really being a military campaign that is undergirding, is underpinned by a spiritual motivation. And therefore, that when we are celebrating the victory, yes, there is the physical military military victory. And that's very important and we acknowledge that. But we cannot forget that the real core of the conflict was about the oil, so to speak, or about the spiritual aspect of it. And I think for us today, you know, we're not used to thinking about uh, our life and our conflict in spiritual terms. You know, we know we have challenges and we have, of course, the challenge to, uh, you know, to, to, to live, to exist in this world and to make a living and to get ahead in life. And we're not used to thinking about the spiritual nature of our daily struggle. And I think one of the themes that we're trying to remember on, on Hanukkah is to remember that our antecedents, the Hasmoneans, 
they were really motivated by the oil. They were motivated by the fact that the temple was defiled and that is what spurred their military campaign. It wasn't that you know, they, they really wanted – they were looking for an excuse to pick fights with a great empire. No. They were motivated by spiritual – the spiritual motivations that was guiding them and that is what engendered the physical war. And I think for us, uh, it's a very powerful uh, emotion and thought to consider during the during the months uh, during the weeks of the week of of Hanukkah, the fact that we too were really, you know, the military war with the Greeks is over, but there still is a war ongoing. This is the war of our life. It's the spiritual war. It's the war that with Greek culture that still exists, and it's we could still partake, so to speak, in the war. And therefore, we're highlighting the fact that uh, the the spiritual war and the spiritual triumph that our ancestors had, that should still inspire us and guide us today. I think that's one answer. There's another answer as to why we are highlighting and focusing so much on the spiritual victory and not so much on the physical military one. And that is the fact that we want to remember that God loves us. There's many times in the Torah where the Almighty pledges and promises that the Jewish people will be an eternal nation. Abraham already is told, your kids, they're going to have the land of Israel and they're going to be the ones to fulfill Tikkun Olam. And uh, the most improbable historical fact is the fact that we existed and we survived and we're still standing as a nation despite everything that uh, has transpired to us. God pledged will forever, it just will be the eternal nation. So it's almost as if God had no choice but to save us militarily. He already promised that we'll survive as a nation. And God keeps his word. And it's almost as if the miracle of the military aspect of the war, that was mandatory. He has to keep his word. He has to keep his pledge. That doesn't necessarily show that he loves us. However, like we said, the miracle of the oil, they could have done with impure oil. Or they could have waited seven days and gotten more pure oil from the north. God wasn't bound to make another miracle. And therefore, that miracle shows that God is not just keeping his promise. It's not just a business relationship where you're bound contractually to keep the Jewish people alive. God loves us as a parent. And that God does something, did something extra, right? It's, it was a bonus for us just because he loves us. And that's an important thing to remember. I heard a, a, a parable to explain this. So you have a babysitter. And the worst thing that can happen to the baby, well, maybe not the worst thing, but a unfortunate thing that would happen to a babysitter is if the baby makes a dirty diaper, right? You got to clean it, right? That's the tax the babysitters get to have to pay. So what happens? You have a babysitter that has a, is watching a charge, charged with watching the baby. The baby makes their diaper. Okay, get the wipes, clean them up, right? Okay. That's one image. And then you have the mother who changes her own child's dirty diaper or the father. In my case, the mother. <laughs> I made a deal with my wife. I say, okay, I'll do throw up. You'll do dirty diapers. So whenever the child vomits, 
anywhere about children. I, it's always my that's my responsibility. Well, you got the better end because there's more dirty diapers than vomiting. That's true. That's true. But okay, so we have a deal. Everyone's happy with the deal. <laughs> so what happens when a parent is changing their own child's dirty diaper? They change the diaper, but then, of course, they scoop up the baby and give, give the child a kiss. That's what parents do. Babysitter, they, they, both of them have to change the dirty diaper. Both of them have to. The babysitter, that's their job. But there's no emotional love that the, that the babysitter has with the child. The parent, on the other hand, there's the, the, yes, they too have a responsibility. They have to change the dirty diaper. But they don't it's not just a, 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 a responsibility that's a toll, it's a burden on them. It's something they love to do. And they, they add the extra kiss and the extra show of affection for the child because they love the child. Indeed, God had to, so to speak. He pledged, he made a promise to save us militarily. The, the, the Greeks want to destroy us as a nation. He, we have to win. It's a miracle. A miracle has to happen. But you know what does not have to happen? The miracle of the oil. That demonstrates his love for us. And a third answer and that is like, what's the benefit of, of acknowledging miracles to begin with? You know, what's the whole, the whole reason why we have the celebration of Hanukkah is to deepen and to develop and to foster and to nourish and to sustain our bond with God. That's the whole purpose of acknowledging the miracles to begin with. We appreciate and we offer gratitude to him and that strengthens our relationship with him. And I would say, you know, if you have a relationship with anyone, certainly a spouse, a way to foster and deepen and strengthen the relationship is by acknowledging and appreciating and showing gratitude to them. But there's two kinds of gratitude. You know, we have the, the holiday season, right? Everyone's giving gifts, uh, either Hanukkah gifts or Xmas gifts, whatever it is. You got to give thank you, right? Uh, but there's a lot of times where you have to acknowledge the goodness done to you by others. It's not only when there's really big gifts, <coughs> It's also one of those really small gifts. I think we're being told here an important lesson. What is the most effective tool to deepen a relationship via gratitude? It's by learning to focus on the little things. When someone gives you something really big, God gives us military victory over the mighty Greeks. And we're so thankful, but we're not really thankful to God per se. We're thankful for the fact that we actually won. The gift itself, so to speak, is the focus. And that is not as apt to connect us with the giver of the gift, i.e. God. Whereas when we train ourselves to give thanks on the small things, which are not so significant, we could have survived very well without the oil. But we're training ourselves to thank God, I thank the giver of the gift. Even on the small things, that actually bonds the recipient of the gift with the giver of the gift. Where the person is not, or the individual, the entity, or the nation, is not focused on the actual gift itself, but on the giver of the gift, because the gift is not so significant, that actually is more likely to foster the real change in the relationship. I think it's a really powerful lesson. You know, if, if your spouse buys you a BMW, you're so happy for the BMW. You're thank, so thankful because of the gift. 
but that's you're not necessarily your happiness and joy and your emotion is not linked to the person it's linked to the item to the the thing that you're getting whereas if you're thankful that your spouse takes out the garbage which is something very small you're not so happy that the garbage is outside you're just happy of the gesture that someone did for you or made your bed or whatever something really small that appreciation on the little things that is actually important to focus on even more or at least to a certain degree to not neglect that because that is really what binds you two together. And, you know, it's interesting. We had a episode in the Parsha a few weeks ago with Rachel. And Rachel is barren for many years. And her sister, Leah, is having kids, popping out the kids, right? She has seven children before Rachel has even one. And Rachel's so miserable, she goes, watch over to her husband, Jacob, and she tells him, give me kids or else I'm going to die. She's so miserable. She's so sad. She feels empty. And then finally, she has a child, Joseph. And the Torah tells us why did she name him Joseph and gives us two reasons. First reason why is the word Yosef means to add. She's already looking at the next baby. Give me another one. Yosef, give me another, add, increase for me another child. That's one reason. But the first reason brought down in the, in the verse is that Rachel says, Asaf Hashem Escharpasi. The word Yosef is connected to Asaf, to gather. God gathered in my shame. She was shamed earlier, and now she is not ashamed. What was she ashamed about? So we would think she was ashamed of the fact that she didn't have any children. She went to the park alone. All right, she didn't have a stroller to push. A lot of like, she was she had shame, but Rashi tells us something very surprising. Rashi says that she had shame. Why? Because every time Jacob walked into the house, and there was no more figs left, there was no more cookies left, there was no one to blame. Because Rachel was the only one who possibly could have eaten them all, and now this is literally what Rashi says. Now, it uh, used to be that when there was no fidge left, who ate the fidge? It must have been you. Now she could tell him, I don't have any shame anymore. You know who ate the fidge? Your son, Yosef. <laughs> who broke the dish? Who broke the glass? Earlier, it was just Rachel. Now it's, it's your kid. That's what Rashi says. And I think it's, it's really surprising teaching. Like it, it, She's so miserable. She doesn't have any children. I'm going to die if you don't have any child. Now you finally have a child. What are we going to celebrate? Oh, I have a scapegoat. You finally have someone to pin the blame on. Seems like a really strange thing. What's the lesson here? The lesson is, is that of course Rachel was appreciative of the big thing that she had a child, and now she's not. She has something to live for. Previously, she said, "I have nothing to live for." Of course, she was appreciative of that. But she also is teaching us a lesson here: to not ignore the most minor of things. What's the most minor of things that you could possibly conjure? What's the least significant benefit of having a child is the fact that you have a scapegoat. That's the least significant thing. Now when the cookie jar is empty, there's someone to blame, not just her. It's the most, it's the smallest thing. And Rachel's teaching us a lesson here is that it's important for us to not just look at the big things. Of course, we have to acknowledge that, but to make a big deal about the little things because we make a big deal about the little things that actually is more apt to bind you to the giver of the gift, in this case, to God. 
She's so appreciative, even with little things, and that strengthens her relationship with her creator and the benefactor. So again, three answers as to why we are celebrating and making a big deal of the small things, either because it's trying to remind us of the spiritual component of the war, or it's trying to show us that God loves us. God had to save us militarily. He didn't need to give us the other gift. That just shows his love. Or when we focus on the small things in life, that is more likely to bind us and to, to connect us with the with our benefactor, with, of course, in this instance is God, but even in our relationships, make a big deal of little things, and that will ensure that our relationships will be sustained and will be strengthened, will be secure, and will deepen and develop as they ought to be.